Chapter 32 of The Missing Bride. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Missing Bride by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter 32 Discoveries. On arriving at Washington, our party drove immediately to the mansion house where they had previously secured rooms. The city was full of strangers from all parts of the country, drawn together by the approaching inauguration of one of the most popular presidents that ever occupied the White House. As soon as our party made known their arrival to their friends, they were inundated with calls and invitations. Brother clergyman called upon Mr. Wilcoxen and pressed upon him the freedom of their houses. Alice Morris and Mrs. Moulton, the relative with whom she was staying, called upon Miriam and insisted that she should go home with them, to remain until after the wedding. But these offers of hospitality were gratefully declined by the little set, who preferred to remain together at their hotel. The whole scene of metropolitan life, in its most stirring aspect, was entirely new and highly interesting to our rustic beauty. Amusements of every description were rife. The theatres, exhibition halls, saloons and concert rooms held out their most attractive temptations and night after night were crowded with the gay votaries of fashion and of pleasure while the churches and lyceums and lecture rooms had greater charms for the more seriously inclined the old and the young the grave and the gay found no lack of occupation amusement and instruction to suit their several tastes or varying moods the second week of their visit the marriage of alice morris and oliver murray came off miriam serving as bridesmaid dr douglas as groomsman and mr wilcoxen as officiating minister but it is not with these marriage festivities that we have to do but with the scenes that immediately succeed them from the time of mr wilcoxen's arrival in the city he had not ceased to exercise his sacred calling his fame had long before preceded him to the capital and since his coming he had been frequently solicited to preach and to lecture not from love of notoriety nor from any such ill-placed vainglory but from the wish to relieve some overtasked brother of the heat and burden of at least one day and possibly by presenting truth in a newer and stronger light to do some good did thurston wilcoxen sabbath after sabbath and evening after evening preach in the churches or lecture before the lyceum crowds flocked to hear him the press spoke highly of his talents and his eloquence the people warmly echoed the opinion and mr wilcoxen against his inclination became the clerical celebrity of the day but from all this unsought world worship he turned away a weary sickened sorrowing man there was but one thing in all the world outside that strongly interested him it was a still small voice a low-toned sweet music keeping near the dear mother earth and her humble children yet echoed and re-echoed from sphere to sphere it was the name of a lady young lovely accomplished and wealthy who devoted herself her time her talents and her fortune to the cause of suffering humanity this young lady 
whose beauty, goodness, wisdom, eloquence, and powers of persuasion were rumored to be almost miraculous, had founded schools and asylums, and had collected by subscription a large amount of money with which she was coming to America to select and purchase a tract of land to settle a colony of the London poor. This angel girl's name and fame was a low, sweet echo, as I said before, never noisy, never rising high, keeping near the ground. People spoke of her in quiet places and dropped their voices to gentle tones in mentioning her and her works. Such was the spell it exercised over them. This lady's name possessed the strangest fascination for Thurston Wilcoxon. He read eagerly whatever was written of her. He listened with interest to whatever was spoken of her. Her name, it was that of his loved and lost Marion. That in itself was a spell. But that was not the greatest charm. Her character resembled that of his Marion. How like my Marion would often be the language of his heart when hearing of her deeds. Even so would my Marion have done had she been born to fortune as this lady was. The name was certainly common enough, yet the similarity of both names and natures inclined him to the opinion that this angel woman must be some distant and more fortunate relative of his own lost Marion. He felt drawn toward the unknown lady by a strong and almost irresistible attraction, and he secretly resolved to see and know her, and pondered in his heart ways and means by which he might, with propriety, seek her acquaintance. While thus he lived two lives, the outer life of work and usefulness, and the inner life of thought and suffering, the young people of his party hoping and believing him to be enjoying the honors heaped upon him, yielded themselves up to the attractions of society. Miriam spent much of her time with her friend Alice Murray. One morning, when she called on Alice, the latter invited her visitor up into her own chamber, and seating her there said, with a mysterious air, Do you know, Miriam, that I have something, the strangest thing that ever was, that I've been wanting to tell you for three or four days now, only I never got an opportunity to do so, because Ollie or someone was always present. But now Ollie has gone to court, and Mother has gone to market, and you and I can have a cozy chat to ourselves. She stopped to stir the fire, and Miriam quietly waited for her to proceed. Now why in the world don't you ask me for my secret? I declare you take so little interest and show so little curiosity that it's not a bit of fun to hint a mystery to you. Do you want to hear or don't you? I assure you it's a tremendous revelation, and it concerns you too. What is it then I'm anxious to hear? Oh, you do begin to show a little interest, and now to punish you, I have a great mind not to tell you. However, I will take pity upon your suspense, but first you must promise never, never, N-E-V-E-R, to mention it again. Will you promise? Yes. Well, then listen. Stop. Get a good place to faint first, and then listen. Are you ready? One, two, three, fire. The Reverend Thurston Wilcoxon is a married man. What? Mr. Thurston Wilcoxon has been married for eight years past. Shaw. Mr. Wilcoxon was married eight years ago this spring at a little Methodist chapel near the navy yard of this city and by an old Methodist preacher of the name of John Berry. You are certainly mad. 
I am not mad, most noble doubter, but speak the words of truth and soberness. Mr. Wilcoxen was married privately, when and where I said, to a beautiful, fair-haired lady whose name heard in the ritual was Marion and my husband, Ollie Murray, was the secret witness of that private marriage. A wild scream that seemed to split the heart from whence it arose broke from the lips of Miriam. Springing forward, she grasped the wrist of Alice, and with her wild eyes starting, straining from their sockets, gazed into her face, crying, Tell me, tell me that you've jested, tell me that you've lied, speak, speak. I told you the Lord's blessed truth, and Ollie knows it. But, Miriam, for goodness sake, don't look that way. You scare me almost to death. And whatever you do, never let anybody know that I told you this, because if you did, Ollie would be very much grieved at me, for he confided it to me as a dead secret, and bound me up to secrecy, too. But I thought as it concerned you so much, it would be no harm to tell you, if you'd not tell it again. And so when I was promising, I made a mental reservation in favor of yourself. And so I have told you, and now you mustn't betray me, Miriam. It is false. All that you have told me is false. Say that it is false. Tell me so. Speak, speak, cried Miriam wildly. It is not false. It is true as gospel, every word of it. Nor is it any mistake, because Ollie saw the whole thing and told me all about it. The way of it was that Ollie overheard them in the Congressional Library arranging the marriage. The gentleman was going to depart for Europe and wished to secure the lady's hand before he went. And at the same time, for some reason or other, he wished the marriage to be kept secret. Ollie owns that it was none of his business, but that curiosity got the upper hand of him. So he listened, and he heard them call each other Thurston and Marion. And when they left the library, he followed them. And so unseen, he witnessed the private marriage ceremony at which they still answered to the names of Thurston and Marion. He did not hear the surnames, he never saw the bride again, and he never saw the bridegroom until he saw Mr. Wilcoxen at our wedding. The moment Ollie saw him, he knew that he had seen him before, but he couldn't call to mind when or where, and the oftener he looked at him, the more convinced he became that he had seen him first under some very singular circumstances. And when at last Ollie heard his first name called Thurston, the whole truth flashed on him at once. He remembered everything connected with the mysterious marriage. I wonder what Mr. Wilcoxen has done with his Marion, or whether she died, or whether she lives, or where he hides her. Well, some men are a mystery, don't you think so, Miriam? But only deep and shuddering groans, upheaving from the poor girl's bosom, answered her. Miriam, oh, don't go on so. What do you mean? Indeed, you alarm me. Oh, don't take it so to heart. Indeed, I wouldn't if I were you. I should think it's the funniest kind of fun, Miriam, I say. She answered not. She had sunk down on the floor, utterly crushed by the weight of misery that had fallen upon her. Miriam, now what in the world do you mean by this? Why do you yield so? I would not do it. I know it is bad to be disappointed of an expected inheritance, and to find out that someone else had a greater claim. But indeed I would not take it to heart so if I were you. Why, if he is married, he may not have a family. And even if he has, he may not utterly disinherit you. And even if he should, I would not grieve myself to death about it if I were you. Miriam, look up, I say. But the hapless girl replied not, heard not, heeded not, 
Deaf, blind, insensible was she to all, everything but to that sharp mental grief that seemed so like physical pain, that fierce anguish of the breast that like an iron band seemed to clutch and close upon her heart, tighter, 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 until it stopped the current of her blood and arrested her breath and threw her into convulsions. Alice sprang to raise her, then ran downstairs to procure restoratives and assistance. In the front hall she met Dr. Douglas, who had just been admitted by the waiter. To his pleasant greeting she replied hastily, breathlessly, "'Oh, Paul, come, come quickly upstairs. Miriam has fallen into convulsions, and I am frightened out of my senses.' "'What caused her illness?' asked Paul in alarm and anxiety as he ran upstairs, preceded by Alice. "'Oh, I don't know,' answered Alice, but thought to herself, it could not have been what I said to her, and if it was, I must not tell. The details of sickness are never interesting. I shall not dwell upon Miriam's illness of several weeks. The doctors pronounced it to be angina pectoris, a fearful and often fatal complaint, brought on in those constitutionally predisposed to it by any sudden shock to mind or body. What could have caused its attack upon Miriam they could not imagine and Alice Murray, in fear and doubt, held her tongue and kept her own counsel. In all her illness, Miriam's reason was not for a moment clouded. It seemed preternaturally awake, but she spoke not, and it was observed that if Mr. Wilcoxen, who was overwhelmed with distress by her dreadful illness, approached her bedside and touched her person, she instantly fell into spasms. In grief and dismay, Thurston's eyes asked of all around an explanation of this strange and painful phenomenon. But none could tell him, except the doctor, who pronounced it the natural effect of the excessive nervous irritability attending her disease, and urged Mr. Wilcoxen to keep away from her chamber, and Thurston sadly complied. Youth and an elastic constitution prevailed over disease, and Miriam was raised from the bed of death but so changed in person and in manner that you would scarcely have recognized her. She was thinner, but not paler. An intense, consuming fire burned in and out upon her cheek, and smoldered and flashed from her eye. Self-concentrated and reserved, she replied not at all, or only in monosyllables, to the words addressed to her, and withdrew more into herself. At length, Dr. Douglas advised their return home, and therefore they set out, and upon the last of March approached Dell Delight. The sky was overcast, the ground was covered with snow, the weather was damp and very cold for the last of March. As evening drew on, and the leaden sky lowered, and the chill damp penetrated the comfortable carriage in which they travelled, Mr. Wilcoxen redoubled his attentions to Miriam carefully wrapping her cloak and furs about her, and letting down the leathern blinds and the damask hangings to exclude the cold. But Miriam shrank from his touch, and shivered more than before, and drew closely into her own corner. Poor child, the cold nips and shrivels her as it does a tropical flower, said Thurston, desisting from his efforts after he had tucked a woolen shawl around her feet. It is really very unseasonable weather. There is snow in the atmosphere. I don't wonder it pinches, Miriam, said Paul Douglas. Ah, 
they did not either of them know that it was a spiritual fever and ague alternately burning and freezing her very heart's blood hope and fear love and loathing pity and horror that striving together made a pandemonium of her young bosom like a flight of fiery arrows came the coincidences of the tale she had heard and the facts she knew that spring eight years before mr murray said he had unseen witnessed the marriage of thurston wilcoxen and marian that spring eight years before she knew mr wilcoxen and miss mayfield had been together on a visit to the capital thurston had gone to europe marian had returned home but had never seemed the same since her visit to the city the very evening of the housewarming at luckenough where marian had betrayed so much emotion thurston had suddenly returned and presented himself at that mansion yet in all the months that followed she had never seen thurston and marian together thurston was paying marked and constant attention to miss leroy while marian's heart was consumed with a secret sorrow and anxiety that she refused to communicate even to edith how distinctly came back to her mind those nights when lying by marian's side she had put her hand over upon her face and felt the tears on her cheeks those tears the recollection of them now and in this connection filled her heart with indescribable emotion her mother too had died in the belief that marian had fallen by the hands of her lover or her husband lastly upon the same night of marian's murder thurston wilcoxen had been unaccountably absent during the whole night from the deathbed of his grandfather and then his incurable melancholy from that day to this his melancholy augmented to anguish at the annual return of the season and then rising in refutation of all the evidence was his own irreproachable life and elevated character ah but she had young as she was heard of such cases before how in some insanity of selfishness or frenzy of passion a crime had been perpetrated by one previously and afterward irreproachable in conduct piercing wound after wound smote these thoughts like swift coming arrows a young immature woman a girl of seventeen in whose warm nature passion and imagination so largely predominated over intellect was but too liable to have her reason shaken from its seat by the ordeal through which she was forced to go as night descended and they drew near del delight the storm that had been lowering all the afternoon came upon them the wind the hail and the snow and the snowdrifts continually forming rendered the roads that were never very good now nearly impassable more and more obstructed difficult and unrecognizable became their way until at last when within eighth of a mile of the house the horses stepped off the road into a covered gully and the carriage was overturned and broken miriam dear miriam dear child are you hurt was the first anxious exclamation of both gentlemen no one was injured the coach lay upon its left side and the right side door was over their heads paul climbed out first and then gave his hand to miriam whom mr wilcoxen assisted up to the window lastly followed thurston 
the horses had kicked themselves free of the carriage and stood kicking yet two wheels and the pole are broken nothing can be done to remove the carriage tonight you'd better leave the horses where they are paul and let us hurry on to get miriam under shelter first then we can send someone to fetch them home they were near the park gate and the road from there to the mansion was very good paul was busy in bundling miriam up in her cloak shawls and furs and then mr wilcoxen approached to raise her in his arms and take her through the snow but no no said miriam shuddering and crouching closely to paul little knowing her thoughts mr wilcoxen slightly smiled and pulling his hat low over his eyes and turning up his fur collar wrapping his cloak closely around him he strode on rapidly before them the snow was blowing in their faces but drawing miriam fondly to his side paul hurried after him when they reached the park gate thurston was laboring to open it against the drifted snow he succeeded and pushed the gate back to let them pass miriam as she went through raised her eyes to his form there he stood in night and storm his tall form shrouded in the long black cloak the hat drawn over his eyes the faint spectral gleam of the snow striking upward to his clear-cut profile the peculiar fall of ghostly light and shade the strong individuality of air and attitude with a half-stifled shriek miriam recognized the distinct picture of the man she had seen twice before with marian what is the matter love were you near falling give me your arm miriam you need us both to help you through the storm said thurston approaching her but with a shiver that ran through all her frame miriam shrank closer to paul who with affectionate pride renewed his care and promised that she should not slip again so link after link of the fearful evidence wound itself around her consciousness which struggled against it like lao kun in the fatal folds of the serpent now cold as if the blood were turned to ice in her veins now burning as if they ran fire she was hurried on into the house they were expected home and old jenny had fires in all the occupied rooms and supper ready to go on the table that was prepared in the parlor but miriam refused all refreshment and hurried to her room it was warmed and lighted by old jenny's care and the good creature followed her young mistress with affectionate proffers of aid wouldn't she have a strong cup of tea wouldn't she have a hot bath wouldn't she have her bed warmed wouldn't she have a bowl of nice hot mulled wine dear dear she was so sorry but it would have frightened herself to death if the carriage had upset with her and no wonder miss miriam was knocked up entirely no 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 miriam would have nothing and old jenny reluctantly left her to repose ah no with fever in her veins to walk up and down and up and down the floor of her room with fearful unrest up and down until the candle burned low and sunk drowned in its socket until the fire on the hearth smoldered and went out until the stars in the sky waned with the coming day until the rising sun kindled all the eastern horizon and then attired as she was she sank upon the outside of her bed and fell into a heavy sleep of exhaustion she arose unrefreshed and after a hasty toilet descended to the breakfast parlor where she knew the little family awaited her the journey and the fright 
have been too much for you, love. You look very weary. You should have rested longer this morning, said Mr. Wilcoxon affectionately, as he arose and met her and led her to the most comfortable seat near the fire. His fine countenance, elevated, grave, and gentle in expression, his kind and loving manner, smote all the tender chords of Miriam's heart. Could that man be guilty of the crime she had dared to suspect him of? Oh, no, 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 never. Every lineament of his face, every inflection of his voice, as well as every act of his life, and every trait of his character forbade the dreadful imputation. But then the evidence, the damning evidence. Her thoughts reeled with a doubt as she sank into the seat he offered her. Ring for breakfast, Paul. Our little housekeeper will feel better when she gets a cup of coffee. But Miriam sprang up to anticipate him and drew her chair to the table and nervously began to arrange the cups and put sugar and cream into them with a vague feeling that she must act as usual to avoid calling observation upon herself. For if questioned, how could she answer inquiries? And whom could she make a confidant in her terrible suspicions? And so through the breakfast scene and so through the whole day she sought to exercise self-control. But could her distress escape the anxious, penetrating eyes of affection? That evening after tea, when Mr. Wilcoxon had retired to his own apartments, and the waiter had replenished the fire and trimmed the lamps and retired, leaving the young couple alone in the parlor, Miriam, sitting on one side of the circular work-table, bending over her sewing, and Paul on the other side, with a book in his hand, he suddenly laid the volume down, and went round and drew a chair to Miriam's side, and began to tell her how much he loved her, how dear her happiness was to him, and so entreat her to tell him the cause of her evident distress. As he spoke, she became paler than death, and suddenly and passionately exclaimed, "'Oh, Paul, Paul, do not question me. You know not what you ask.' "'My own Miriam, what mean you? I ought to know.' "'Oh, Paul, Paul, I am one foredoomed to bring misery and destruction upon all who love me, upon all whom I love. My own dearest, you are ill and need change, and you shall have it, Miriam.' he said, attempting to soothe her with that gentle, tender, loving manner he ever used towards her. But shuddering sighs convulsed her bosom, and, oh, Paul, Paul, was all she said. Is it that promise that weighs upon your mind, Miriam? Cast it out. You cannot fulfill it. Impossibilities are not duties. Oh, Paul, would heaven it were impossible, or that I were dead. Miriam, where are those letters you wish to show me? Oh, do not ask me, Paul. Not yet, not yet. I dread to see them. And yet, who knows, they may relieve this dreadful suspicion. They may point to another probability, she said incoherently. Just get me those letters, dear Miriam, he urged gently. She arose, tottering, and left the room, and after an absence of fifteen minutes, returned with a packet in her hand. These seals have not been broken since my mother closed them, said Miriam, as she proceeded to open the parcel. The first she came to was the bit of a note, without date or signature, making the fatal appointment. This Paul, she said mournfully, was found in the pocket of the dress Marian wore at Luckenough, 
but changed at home before she went out to walk that evening of her death. Mother always believed that she went out to meet the appointment made in that note. Paul took the paper with eager curiosity to examine it. He looked at it, started slightly, turned pale, shuddered, and passed his hand once or twice across his eyes, as if to clear his vision, looked again, and then his cheeks blanched. His lips gradually whitened and separated, his eyes started, and his whole countenance betrayed consternation and horror. Miriam gazed upon him in a sort of hushed terror, and then exclaimed, Paul, Paul, what is the matter? You look as if you'd been turned to stone by gazing on the Gorgon's head. Paul, Paul! Miriam, did your mother know this handwriting? He asked in a husky, almost inaudible voice. No. Did she suspect it? No. Did you know or suspect it? No. I was a child when I received it, remember? I have never seen it since. Not when you put it in my hand just now? No, I never looked at the writing. That was most strange, that you should not have glanced at the handwriting when you handed it to me. Why didn't you? Were you afraid to look at it, Miriam? Why do you turn away your head, Miriam? Answer me. Do you know the handwriting? No, Paul, I do not know it. Do you? No, no, how should I? But, Miriam, your head is still averted. Your very voice is changed. Miriam, what mean you? Tell me once for all. Do you suspect the handwriting? How should I? Do you, Paul? No, no, I don't suspect it. They seemed afraid to look each other in the face, and well they might be. For the written agony on either brow, they seemed afraid to hear the sound of each other's words, and well they might be, for the hollow, unnatural sound of either voice. It cannot be. I'm crazy, I believe. Let me clear my oh heaven, Miriam, did, was, do you know whether there was anyone in particular on familiar terms with Miss Mayfield? No one out of the family except Miss Thornton. Out of the family? Out of what family? Ours at the cottage? Was, did, I wonder if my brother knew her intimately. I do not know. I never saw them in each other's company, but twice in my life. The youth breathed a little freer. Why did you ask, Paul? No matter, Miriam. Oh, I was a wretch, a beast to think. What, Paul? There are such strange resemblances in, in, in. What are you looking at me so for, Miriam, to find your meaning? In what, Paul? Strange resemblances in what? Why, in faces. Why, then, so there are, and in persons also, and sometimes in fates. But we were talking of handwritings, Paul. Were we? Oh, true. I'm not quite right, Miriam. I believe I have confined myself too much and studied too hard. I am really out of sorts. Never mind me. Please hand me those foreign letters, love. Miriam was unfolding and examining them, but all in a cold, stony, unnatural way. Paul, she asked. Wasn't it just eight years this spring since your brother went to Scotland to fetch you? Yes. Why? Wasn't it to Glasgow that he went? Yes. Why? Were not you there together in March and April? 1828? Once more, yes. Why do you inquire? Because all these foreign letters directed to Marion are postmarked Glasgow and dated March or April 1828. 
with a low stifled cry and a sudden spring he snatched the packet from her hand tore open the first letter that presented itself and ran his strained bloodshot eyes down the lines half suppressed deep groans like those wrung by torture from a strong man's heart burst from his pale lips and great drops of sweat gathered on his agonized forehead and then he crushed the letters together in his hand and held them tightly unconsciously while his starting eyes were fixed on vacancy and his frozen lips muttered in a fit of frantic passion anger jealousy even he might have been maddened to the pitch of doing such a thing but as an act of base policy as an act of forethought oh never 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 paul paul speak to me paul tell me what you think i've had foreshadowings long i can bear silence and uncertainty no longer what find you in those letters oh speak or my heart will burst paul he gave no heed to her or her words but remained like one impaled still fixed yet writhing his features his whole form and expression discolored distorted with inward agony paul paul cried miriam starting up and standing before him gazing on him paul speak to me your looks kill me speak paul even though you can tell me little new i know it all paul or nearly all weeks ago i received the shock it overwhelmed me for the time but i survived it but you paul you oh how you look speak to your sister paul speak to your promised wife but he gave no heed to her she was not strong or assured she felt herself tottering on the very verge of death or madness but she could not bear to see him looking so once more she essayed to engage his attention give me those letters paul i can perhaps make out the meaning as he did not reply she gently sought to take them from his hand but at her touch he suddenly started up and threw the packet into the fire with a quick spring miriam darted forward thrust her hand into the fire and rescued the packet scorched and burning but not destroyed she began to put it out regardless of the pain to her hands he looked as if he were tempted to snatch it from her but she exclaimed no paul no you will not use force to deprive me of this that i must guard as a sacred trust still paul hesitated and eyed the packet with a gloomy glance remember honor paul even in this trying moment said miriam let honor be saved if all else be lost what do you mean to do with that packet he asked in a hollow voice keep them securely for the present and afterward i know not miriam you evade my questions will you promise me one thing and what is that promise me to do nothing with those letters until you have further evidence i promise you that then paul took up a candle and left the room as if to go to his sleeping apartment but on reaching the hall he threw down and extinguished the light and rushed as if for breath out into the open air the night was keen and frosty the cold slaty sky was thickly studded with sparkling stars the snow was crusted over it was a fine fresh clear wintry night at another time it would have invigorated and inspired him now the air seemed stifling the scene hateful the horrible suspicion of his brother's criminality had entered his heart for the first time and it had come with a shock of certainty the sudden recognition of the handwriting the strange revelations of the foreign letters 
had not only in themselves been a terrible disclosure, but had struck the whole electric chain of memory and association, and called up in living force many an incident and circumstance heretofore strange and incomprehensible, but now only too plain and indicative. The whole of Thurston's manner, the fatal day of the assassination, his abstraction, his anxious haste to get away on the plea of the most urgent business in Baltimore, business that never was afterward heard of, his mysterious absence of the whole night from his grandfather's deathbed, provoking the conjecture at the time and unaccounted for to this day, his haggard and distracted looks upon returning late the next morning, his incurable sorrow, his habit of secluding himself upon the anniversary of that crime, and now the damning evidence in these letters. Among them, and the first he looked at, was the letter Thurston had written Marian to persuade her to accompany him to France, in the course of which his marriage with her was repeatedly acknowledged, being incidentally introduced as an argument in favor of her compliance with his wishes. Yet Paul could not believe the crime ever premeditated. It was sudden, unintentional, consummated in a lover's quarrel, in a fit of jealousy, rage, disappointment, madness. Stumbling upon half the truth, he said to himself, perhaps failing to persuade her to fly with him to France, he had attempted to carry her off, and being foiled, had temporarily lost his self-control, his very sanity. That would account for all that had seemed so strange in his conduct the day and night of the assassination and the morning after. There was agony. There was madness in the pursuit of the investigation. Oh, pitying heaven, how thought and grief surged and seethed in aching heart and burning brain. And Miriam's promise to her dying mother. Miriam's promise to bring the criminal to justice. Would she? Could she now abide by its obligations? Could she prosecute her benefactor, her adopted brother, for murder? Could her hand be raised to hurl him down from his pride of place to shame and death? No, 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 the vow must be broken, must be evaded. The right, even if it were the right, must be transgressed. Heaven offended anything, anything, anything but the exposure and sacrifice of their brother. If he had sinned, had he not repented? Did he not suffer? What right had she, his ward, his protege, his child, to punish him? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. No, Miriam must not keep her vow. She must, she must, she must, responded the moral sense slow, measured, dispassionate, as the regular fall of a clock's hammer. I will myself prevent her. I will find means, arguments, and persuasions to act upon her. I will so appeal to her affections, her gratitude, her compassion, her pride, her fears, her love for me. I will so work upon her heart that she will not find courage to keep her vow. She will, she will, responded the deliberate conscience. And so he walked, up and down. Vainly the fresh wind fanned his fevered brow. Vainly the sparkling stars glanced down from holy heights upon him. He found no coolness for his fever in the air, no sedative for his anxiety in the stillness, 
no comfort for his soul in the heavens. He knew not whether he were indoors or out, whether it were night or day, summer or winter, he knew not, wrapped as he was in the mantle of his own sad thoughts, suffering as he was in the purgatory of his inner life. While Paul walked up and down like a maniac, Miriam returned to her room to pace the floor until nearly morning, when she threw herself exhausted upon the bed, fell into a heavy sleep, and a third time, doubtless, from nervous excitement or prostration, suffered a repetition of her singular vision, and awoke late in the morning with the words, Perform thy vow, ringing in her ears. End of chapter 32